Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Rylott and this is part 9 on the series on World War I. It is entitled, Europe Goes to War, 1914. The 28th of June, 1914, was a Sunday and the weather was warm and sunny in the Bosnian capital, Sarajevo. In the morning, a couple descended from a train to take a seat in an open, touring car, one of the few of its kind in Europe at the time. The man, dressed in a blue tunic and feathered hat of the dress uniform of an Austrian cavalry general, was Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His wife Sophie, the Duchess, was dressed all in white except for a red sash. It was a foolhardy decision for the Archduke to visit Sarajevo, for he was well aware that there were various nationalist groups which were likely to try and assassinate him. The most significant would prove to be the Serbian Narodna Odbrana, along with its secret terrorist wing known as the Black Hand. Their intention was to create a greater Serbia, which would bring in parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire with Slav populations, including Bosnia, which had been annexed by Austro-Hungary in 1908. A group of seven members of the group plotted to kill the Archduke during his trip to Sarajevo, and on the morning of the 28th were among the crowds that had gathered along the route of the visit. As the procession was travelling through the city, one of the conspirators threw a grenade at the Archduke's car. The driver saw it coming and accelerated, with the result that the bomb exploded under the next car, and several of the passengers, as well as some bystanders, were wounded. The Archduke sent an aide to find out what had happened, and then ordered the programme to proceed as planned. After a visit to the town hall, Franz Ferdinand insisted on being driven to the military hospital to see those who had been injured in the explosion. En route, however, his driver took a wrong turn, driving to where one of the conspirators, Gavrilo Principe, just happened to be standing on a street corner. As the car tried to reverse out, Principe stepped forward, raised his gun and from a distance of about five feet, fired two shots. The first bullet hit Franz Ferdinand in the neck, while the second struck the Duchess in the abdomen. 
The terrified driver sped away to the governor's residence, but it was too late. Sophie was dead on arrival, and Franz Ferdinand succumbed to his wounds ten minutes later. Principe and his co-conspirators were swiftly arrested and interrogated. Although Bosnian citizens, it soon became clear from confessions extracted that the Serbian state was deeply implicated, even if at arm's length. The Black Hand was already suspected of having close links with the Serbian army, who provided them with weapons and training. The Austrian chief of the general staff, Franz Konrad von Hudsendorf, who had been clamouring for war against Serbia for years, immediately demanded strong military action. There was heated debate in Vienna as to how to respond. Had Franz Ferdinand been alive, it is likely that his influence would have been to avert war. While an arch-conservative, he had recognised the monarchy's internal weaknesses and the need to find a solution for the nationality problem by tackling the privileged position of the Hungarians and granting concessions to the South Slavs. He had also wanted accommodation with Russia, whose Tsarist regime was an ideological ally. His assassination not only triggered a hostile reaction against the Serbs, but removed one of the main champions of peace from the Habsburg regime. The natural inclination of Emperor Franz Josef, after a disastrous war with Prussia early in his reign, was to avoid any large-scale conflict. Yet he was persuaded of the need to act against Serbia for the protection of his honour and as the only way to maintain the status of his empire as one of the world's great powers. Konrad von Hutzendorf argued that the assassination was an opportunity to justify attacking their troublesome neighbour, Serbia, suspected of working towards a new Balkan League which, according to the Vienna newspaper, the Neue Freie Press, would be like a dagger in the hands of Russia, pointed straight to the heart of Austria. If the Austrians defeated the Serbs, already weakened by recent war, they could quash the endless calls for Slavic autonomy for at least a generation. In Vienna, angry demonstrators gathered outside the Serbian embassy, singing and shouting, Down with Serbia! They burned the Serbian flag before being moved on by the police. It took a full month for the Viennese government to make the final decision to act. A key moment was the decision of Germany to give the Austrians what became known as a blank cheque, that is, the promise to support their ally militarily whatever choice they made. On one level, some German politicians believed that a quick war between Austria and Serbia could be kept to just a local conflict, but they were well aware of the interests of Russia, whose government had made clear their intention of intervening if Serbia, their principal ally in the Balkans, was attacked. And if Russia entered the war, her ally, France, would be obliged to join the conflict as well. The German leaders were prepared to accept the possibility of a wider war because they calculated that if it was to happen, then better sooner rather than later, before the Russians had time to build up their military strength. The decision made in Berlin was based partly on ambition, a chance to seize great swathes of territory in the east in Poland and Russia, and to emasculate France once and for all. And with domination of Europe achieved, Germany 
backed by her powerful navy, could finally attain the status of a world power. But the decision was also motivated by fear of being encircled by France and Russia. The actions of the Austro-Hungarian orders were likewise motivated by fear, writes Alexander Watson in his book Ring of Steel, out of a profound sense of weakness, fear and even despair. Quote, Their multi-ethnic empire had a history stretching over nearly 400 years. It had seen off the Ottoman Sultan, outlasted Napoleon, and survived religious struggle and revolution. But by the early 20th century, it appeared to many statesmen, both inside and beyond, that its days were numbered. Throughout the continent, people had a growing sense of national identity, which conflicted with the multinational character of the empire. After nearly a month of dithering, on the 23rd of July, the Austrians finally issued an ultimatum which contained ten stringent demands of the Serbs requiring answers within just two days. At the same time, clearly anticipating a rejection of those demands, they began to mobilise their forces. Serbia was required not only to desist, but also to publicly condemn all forms of nationalist or separatist propaganda. The Serbs accepted almost all of the ultimatum's points, rejecting just one that allowed Austrian police to operate on Serbian soil. That was enough for the Austrians to declare war, which they did on the 28th of July. And the next day, they began shelling the Serbian capital, Belgrade. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany attempted to persuade Tsar Nicholas of Russia not to intervene, but the St. Petersburg government responded by announcing a partial mobilisation against Austria, which turned a local conflict into a much larger conflagration. Then on the 1st of August, Germany ordered a general mobilisation and declared war on Russia. That same day, France also mobilised. On the 2nd of August, Germany contacted the Belgian government, demanding free passage for her troops through Belgium, a demand which was swiftly rejected. Germany and France declared war on one another, and news arrived in London that German troops were already in Luxembourg. King Victor Emmanuel of Italy was willing to sign a mobilisation order to fight alongside his country's formal allies, Germany and Austria. To no one's surprise, though, the Italian cabinet chose to bail out of their alliance with the Central Powers, announcing that popular pressure precluded their involvement. Many Germans and Austrians expressed disgust at the betrayal as they perceived it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The initial response of the British newspapers and public after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was outrage at the act of terrorism and sympathy with Austrians in viewing Serbia as a Balkan nuisance. The British government attempted to calm the situation with the proposal of a convention to avert a war. But Austria was intent on a violent resolution. A month after the assassination, the initial shock had worn off, and international sympathies had called. The ultimatum, therefore, no longer seemed sincere. Indeed it was not. It was not a genuine set of conditions, but an excuse for war. The German government hoped that the British would stay out of the war, and the intervention was by no means certain. But the British government and public were preoccupied not with events on the continent, but with an apparently imminent civil war in Ireland. In 1914, a parliamentary home rule bill was set to come into force, which provoked furious resistance among Irish Unionists, some of whom vowed to oppose home rule by force of arms if necessary. Irish nationalists responded by setting up their own paramilitary formations. There was widespread concern in Britain at the thrust of German policy, but left-wing and liberal opinion was solidly neutralist. Dislike of German militarism was balanced by hostility to a despotic Russian regime, whose pogroms against Jews and brutal persecution of dissidents were equally offensive to the liberal conscience. And also it was widely believed that British imperial interests were threatened more by France and Russia than by Germany. The British government had therefore declined to give unequivocal assurance to Paris and St Petersburg of military assistance in a European-wide war. Yet there was general outrage in Britain at the invasion of neutral Belgium, in clear violation of international law. The Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, demanded a meeting with the German Chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg, during which Hollweg expressed surprise that Britain was prepared to go to war over the breach of the treaty guaranteeing Belgian neutrality, just a scrap of paper, as he called it. When Berlin declined an ultimatum to withdraw from Belgian territory, London declared war on Germany. Peter Hart writes that while sentimentality over Belgium undoubtedly played well to the British public, there was also a degree of hard-nosed calculation that underpinned Britain's road to war. 
Germany was already strong, and should she emerge victorious in a war with France and Russia, then the balance of power on the continent would be shattered. Plans for war had begun many years before. In 1904, Kaiser Wilhelm had asked the chief of the German general staff, Alfred von Schlieffen, to devise a plan which would allow Germany to fight on two fronts, against France and Russia. Von Schlieffen calculated that it would take six weeks for the Russians to fully mobilise and to transport her troops to the front because of the distances to be covered, the poor state of the Russian railways and the inefficiencies of Russian bureaucracy. In that time, he claimed, Germany could defeat France before the Russians had the opportunity to invade East Prussia. The Germans would march through Belgium into northern France, pass to the west of Paris, trapping French troops in a pincer movement, and force a decisive battle. Von Schlieffen died in 1913 and was replaced by Helmut von Moltke, nephew of the man of the same name who led the Germans to victory against France in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. Von Moltke the Younger was the most influential figure in the German government and enjoyed a close association with the Kaiser. He was a big, heavy-set man who read widely, but was introspective and insecure. There were many who doubted his ability to cope with the heavy demands of his position. He modified von Schlieffen's plan so as to provide better protection against a possible French invasion of southern Germany and to avoid having to invade Holland as well, for if the war did drag on, a neutral Holland would be essential for the German economy. The combined armies of France, Russia and Britain, together with Serbia, outnumbered those of the Central Powers. German and Austro-Hungarian generals knew that if victory was to be won, it would most likely have to be achieved quickly, for the odds against them would lengthen in a prolonged conflict. There were also domestic reasons to fear a long war. Habsburg leaders, already anxious about their people's loyalties in peace, could scarcely welcome the destabilising hardship and discontents that would accompany extended hostilities. It was therefore, from the beginning, a highly risky strategy. Indeed, Alexander Watson describes it as reckless. Quote, To crush the French army, one of Europe's most modern, best equipped and largest armed forces, in less than a month and a half, was breathtakingly audacious, and as it turned out, a foolhardy aspiration. End quote. Admittedly, the German military had a significant advantage with artillery. The French could field only 308 heavy guns against the German army's 848, and they had nothing to match Germany's medium and heavy howitzers. Still, the French had excellent field artillery, the Soissons cannes, which could outrange German light guns. In most other aspects of material, there was little to separate the two enemies. Perhaps the Germans were counting on what they thought was their superior leadership of the military. Their troops' morale, discipline and training were also believed to be superior to those of their French counterparts. Conservative Prussian officers tended to misinterpret French Republican ideals as undermining, rather than, as it turned out during the war, reinforcing French conscripts' loyalty. On the 4th of August, 
German troops entered Belgium. All of the five great powers of Europe were now at war, triggering a conflict far more devastating than any before. As Edward Grey memorably expressed it, quote, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. End quote. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next time I will cover the initial fighting on the Western Front in 1914. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.